All right. Welcome uh, to another Sunday in our sermon series, Listen. Um, that bumper video gets me every time. The, the traffic, the noise of the alarm clock in the back, the busy pace, all the different things that can drown out uh, the most important voices in our lives, the, the things that could guide us to health and well-being that can draw us closer to God can be drowned out by the noise. And so the simple title of our series, the simple command that God gives us regarding his son is listen. And so we again come together this morning to listen to hear what God has to say, but as we begin, as I often do, I want to start with a question. Um, Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you had more than one boss telling you what to do? (laughs) By the laughs and nodding heads, I'm assuming it's a pretty common experience where you had multiple people trying to tell you uh, what to do, and I'm assuming that means that they weren't telling you the exact same thing to do, right? You had multiple people telling you to do different things. Some of you know that um, for about five years, I worked at Olivet Nazarene University, not Olivet Michigan College, that's a different thing, but Olivet Nazarene University, our denominations school in Illinois, and uh, when I was hired in there, I was hired into the admissions department, and my role was a new role. They had just I had some ladies that had been working in that office for a very long time, and they all retired at the same time. And they thought it was a good time to kind of revamp and kind of update some of the technology and some of the processes. And so they created my role, um, and I came in and kind of got to kind of redefine some things and, and, and work with the students that worked in the office, the other staff, my boss. And we, we worked on updating processes and developing uh, tools in the technology, and it really went well. Um, the admission office, the, the counselors and the staff and the financial aid people really got a grasp of what we were trying to do, and it just was a partnership that, that really took off. Um, when I was back on campus uh, a few months back for a trustee, ONU trustees meeting, um, I saw some of the remnants of the things that, that I had helped develop still at work. And so even years later, um, it, was, it had become kind of the foundation of things that were in that department. It actually went so well that the, the, the VP of my division um, talked with my boss and said, can we do what you guys did here, uh, but on a larger scale? And so my boss uh, got a promotion and got a new title and a new role and some broader authority. And he asked me to come and kind of do what I did in admissions, but across institutional advancement. And uh, the idea was that we were gonna support multiple areas in institutional advancement. I'm not gonna go into all of it, but it involved marketing and development and the fundraising arm and and some of all that. Um, And so we set about, I took the job, we set about doing it, and we ran into all different types of problems. Um, The biggest problem for me personally was that I had On paper, one boss. In reality, I now had three. And part of creating this new role and trying to accomplish this new task that we were being asked to do, we had to get buy-in from these other departments uh, on change. And change is hard, and so everybody wanted to make sure that their priorities, their values, the things that they thought were most important were covered. And so it all kind of got mushed into my new role. And so uh, my boss had certain expectations of what my day-to-day work was going to look like and what my uh, responsibilities were. The other departments that we were supporting had different priorities and different goals for what they wanted me to be doing. And so the problem was 
it, it wasn't that anybody was wanting me to do something wrong or wanting me to do something bad. They actually, it was all good stuff. The problem was that each leader, each department had its own priorities, values, and goals and expectations, which was, was normal. It's perfectly expected and honestly how you would expect leaders to, to act. Um, the problem was that I just couldn't follow three different leaders in three different directions at the same time. Have you ever experienced that type of situation? I started out by asking that question, but that's really what I'm wanting to get at is this, this moment where there's only one of you, but the needs uh, are greater than what one can do. Or if I set out doing this, it means I, I can't do this other thing. Um, and, it, and, and so I'm not complaining. Don't hear me uh, complain about my time at all, but it was actually growing pains. I was actually in a season where some old unhealthy uh, practices uh, were kind of rooted out and there's, there's growing pains. Uh, we talk uh, sometimes around here, I've, I've had this conversation with, with Hannah a lot about uh, when you remodel a house or remodel a space, the first move often makes it look messier, right? <laughs> like if you're gonna take the drywall down and expose the studs or you're doing wiring, it makes a bigger mess to start with. Those are the growing pains. It's the, the challenges that come with letting go of what was to embrace what, what was next. And, and, and so that was my time at all of it. I got to be a part of the, the maybe the demo um, part. And that's, that was messy, it was challenging at times, but. Going back, I see that they've built off of that, and, and so it's not a complaint at all. But you can't follow three people in three different directions, right? Um, and that's where um, our scripture will jump in for us today. Last week, we introduced uh, a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth, and we're just going to continue on in that letter. Last week was very much the intro in which he called them holy saints, you know, the church of Jesus, um, the sanctified ones that God had called, right? Uh, it was just an introduction to the letter. Um, this week we get a little bit more into some of the issues that uh, the Apostle Paul was trying to address. So we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. Um, it'll be on the screen, or you can use a Bible um, in the chairs, or if you want to use an uh, electronic device, um, that's fine too. Some people get nervous about pulling out their phone in the middle of church, but the pastor says it's okay, so... Um, as long as you're on the Bible app. First uh, <clears throat> uh, Corinthians 1, 10 through 18 says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, you, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions amongst you, but that you perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me there are quarrels amongst you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Paulus. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Um, pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, wondrous spirit, gather our minds, that they may be one with you. Open our ears, 
that we may hear your word, soften our hearts, that we may receive your wisdom. Speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. Um, Many of you know, I've mentioned it before, that um, for most of the time, there's some exceptions, but most of the time, we follow the lectionary. And so what the lectionary is, is, is a, a, it's tied in with the church calendar, the seasons of church life, right? It starts with Advent, and which goes into Christmas, which goes into the season we're in now is Epiphany, or the season after Epiphany. This will take us into Lent, which is preparation for Easter, and then there's this Easter tide, or the season after Easter, and then it runs into what's called ordinary time, which is just life with Christ, right? There's no special focus other than living with Jesus, and that takes us all the way back uh, to Advent next, next fall, next winter. Um, so we follow that, and so each week um, we're given the option of a, a few different scriptures to follow. Um, and so when Hannah or whoever on the worship team reads a psalm, that's tied in with this lectionary. The, the scripture that Tabitha read this morning is part of that as well. Some wise spiritual people many years ago said these scriptures are telling a story and we want to tell the whole story. So it pulls in an Old Testament, a New Testament, a psalm, um, and then a gospel. And so back in October or November, I decided we're going we're gonna to look at the New Testament writings for the season after Epiphany. So these, these scriptures that we're, we're studying now, um, through prayer and preparation, um, we started planning back before Christmas. And I think God has a word for us as a church um, speaking through this letter that was written to this church in Corinth. Last week, if you remember, we talked along the lines that because God is the hero of the story, our hope is in God. Our hope isn't in our own abilities to to fix things or to do everything perfectly. If that was the case, hope would be pretty, uh, pretty low. Our hope is in God because God is faithful to us. God is the hero of the story Um, God is the hero because he sends Jesus into the world on a mission to seek and to save and to heal. So this this reveals how God is faithful to us. God called us together. He called us his family. And as we looked last week, his family throughout history have been prone to wander. But that doesn't stop him from pursuing and seeking and trying to save and redeem. It is God that comes looking for his children. Um, But this week we look at another implication of knowing that God is faithful. Um, And another implication of knowing that God is the hero of the story. Um, Because God is faithful, we can have unity. Last week we started by looking at some of the problems in the church in Corinth. We looked at kind of some of the divisions there just ever so briefly. Um, This week I want us to take another step back and get an even bigger view of the issues of the church in Corinth. Um, We want to look at the culture of the city of Corinth itself. So Corinth was a Roman city, um, but it had a history as an old Greek city. So it's, it's, a, it's a Roman city, but it has this, this underlying Greek influence in it. Um, and that influence, that Greek influence, shaped the culture and the practices and the religion in Corinth. So while it was, had the label Roman on it today, in the past, it was shaped and formed and built on a foundation built by Greek uh, practices. 
Now, some of you I know have uh, probably studied um, Greek mythology and Greek philosophy. Anybody have any background with, with Greek philosophy? <laughs> Took a few classes. I'm, I wouldn't consider myself an expert by any means, but maybe you've been exposed to some of it. Um, but, so rather than explain all of Greek philosophy and how this shaped the city of Corinth and, and what this did, I just want to take a, one verse or a couple verses from the book of Acts that summarizes Paul, the Apostle Paul, his view of Greek philosophy, right? So instead of explaining it and going into all the the pitfalls and the strengths and weaknesses, I just want you to hear the words that we can find in Acts chapter 17. This is Paul, uh, this isn't him describing Corinth, but this is him describing uh, the the Greek people that he was encountering. But I'll give you a a perspective on, on how the Greek philosophy and religion will shape the culture. Uh, Acts 17, verse 21, says this, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, so people in Athens, Greece, spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. This was Paul's assessment of Greek culture. People just stood around, not doing anything, and just talked about the latest ideas. If you are familiar with Greek philosophy or Greek religion, Greek mythology, you know that they put an emphasis on wisdom. It's a big part of what what they're all about. Um, And the Greek word for wisdom is Sophia. Um, And so there's these groups of people in Greek cultures or that came later uh, called sophists. It's built on the Greek word for wisdom, right? So you got Sophia meaning wisdom and then you have these sophists who argued and debated anything and everything. It was like the debate team, right? They didn't necessarily care about the topic. Uh, it was the practice of debating that they, th- they thought was important, getting to the wisdom behind it, getting to the truth. And so maybe at one time, this practice, these sophists, this group of debaters were really concerned about getting to the truth. They really wanted to get to the wisdom, um, but at some point in their practices, it just became about winning. Um, by nature, they weren't religious people, but they would use the religious culture of their surroundings, of their uh, audience. Um, these sophists would use the rhetorical tools of the day. They combined it with religious sources to win an argument at all costs. And, and part of what happened was as the better you got at winning in these arguments, the larger the audience would come to hear you or the more financial support you would get. And so it was, I mean, it might sound ridiculous to us today. Here, here all people are going to go stand on the street corner in the town square and hear people argue about stuff that they don't really care about and use rhetorical tools and all this stuff. But it, as I was thinking about this, it really started to remind me of kind of social media in our day. Um, maybe like the cable news, opinion shows, podcast personalities, where the winning, the debate, um, coming across with the best idea to draw an audience is the motivation. It just kind of, it kind of felt familiar. So while it, you know, this was two, 3,000 years ago, these sophists existed, um, I think we can relate them to social media influencers or uh, shock jocks or podcast personalities of today. But this is the backdrop in the church in Corinth. So as um, there's this church in the city, you have these sophists who use fantastic, dramatic, and religious-sounding arguments to prove how great they were. 
um, to draw a crowd, to draw a following, to get likes and subscribes on YouTube, to win the attention and support of the crowd. Right? This is what they did. And so the people of the church in Corinth would understand if you grew up in Corinth, if you lived in Corinth, if you were shaped by this practice and understood that this is what was going on, even though they were part of the church, they had this background that would allow them to or maybe force them to understand that public speakers teaching crowds about truth, teaching crowds about religion, teaching crowds about wisdom and life are doing so to appeal to the crowd's uh, interests and to win the crowd's favor and support. You can see how this could influence the church, right? So like you have this, this culture out there that said, oh, those people that are standing up in front, the people in the spotlights, the people that want the attention, they're gonna do this dramatic presentation, they're gonna teach, they're gonna do all these things so that the crowd would support them. People standing in the spotlight are doing so to boost their own status and reputation. And how did this infect the church? How did it shape it? Well, the Apostle Paul never attempted to get people to celebrate and worship him. He wasn't trying to get followers for himself, even though Apollos was never criticized in the scriptures for seeking celebrity status in the church or developing a following for himself, even though Cephas, whose, whose name as we know it in the Gospels is Peter, never even went to Corinth, this church who had been shaped by their culture, they knew what to do. And so we read in our scripture today, some people would say, I follow the Apostle Paul. That's the guy I'm choosing. Some others said, I follow Apollos. And yet others said, I follow Cephas. And then there was apparently some people that said, well, I'm following Jesus. Um, I follow Christ. So the Apostle Paul gets this report from Chloe's household. And it's pretty likely pretty probable that the church would have been gathering at Chloe, Chloe's house, um, in her household. And, but anyway, so Paul gets this report that there's conflict in the church and it's divided over who is following which teacher. He starts out our text today by saying he wants them to agree with one another in what they say. If you look at the literal translation of that, the, the actual language of the letter in Greek, and I don't spend a whole lot of time trying to translate Greek for, for us, but if you look at the literal translation, it says that he wants them to say the same thing. Paul discusses baptism, and it might look like he's being critical of it, but he's not dismissing it. He's not trying to criticize baptism, but because people were identifying their faith with the one who baptized them. Apollos baptized me. Um, I'm a follower of him, right? So, so it was a way, baptism, instead of uniting the church together in the name of Jesus, it was actually people were using it based off of who baptized them to divide themselves. It was a sign of the teacher that they were following and supporting. So you had this, these little small groups within the church based off of which leader they wanted to follow. And the Apostle Paul says he, he was sent to preach the gospel Proclaim and announce the good news. I've been saying for a while now, um, and I'm going to continue to say it, that when we read the word gospel, we shouldn't think of uh, that Paul or anybody else is referring to a system of steps or a formula that, that will get you to heaven when you die. That's not what he's saying when he, when he says gospel. These three things or these five steps to get you to heaven. When he says gospel, he's 
literally saying that it's an announcement that Jesus is king. He came to preach that Jesus is king of all. And everybody has Jesus as their king. And the response to that gospel, that announcement is when you hear that gospel, when you hear that Jesus is king, when you hear the story of how Jesus uh, was uh, called and anointed and, and his experience and all the signs and miracles that he performed that indicated who he was and his death and his burial and his resurrection and all of those things. When you, when you hear the story and you hear the announcement, the proclamation that that Jesus of Nazareth is king of all, the response, the invitation to that gospel is faith, is trust, it's allegiance, it's obedience, it's worship, it's honor. The Apostle Paul didn't say that God sent him to show people how to get to heaven when they died. He is, in fact, saying that God sent him to announce that Jesus is the king above everyone else and he alone is worthy of trust and fidelity. And then the Apostle Paul notes that even in his announcement of the gospel, he didn't, he didn't do it like the sophists do. Right? So he's directly con- contradicting or contrasting himself, his gospel proclamation with the culture in Corinth. It wasn't a huge rhetorical display filled with wisdom of the world or the eloquence of the best speakers. See, he's not just saying that in our, he's not just like diminishing himself saying, well, I'm a terrible public speaker or I didn't try to convince you using wisdom. He's, he's contrasting it against the culture in which the church of Corinth is found because people are lining up behind who they think is the best public speaker, behind who's the most impressive storyteller, the best uh, debater, who's got the best arguments, the most impressive following, right? And Paul is contrasting himself against that, saying, I did not come with worldly wisdom filled with rhetorical tools and devices. He says the cross itself is foolishness. What he means by that is it's the opposite of what the world calls wisdom. The sophists were all about lifting up wisdom, about being impressive and, and winning and overcoming and drawing the crowd and to yourself and, and, and lifting yourself up through these arguments. And, and Paul says the cross is foolishness. It's the opposite of that. It's contrary to the system where using impressive words and rhetorical tools uh, elevated not the truth of what was being said, but elevated the speaker. Do you see what's, what's happening here? There's this dynamic where, where people would go and they'd hear these speakers talk about wisdom and religion and truth but not to share the good news of the wisdom or the truth but to elevate themselves and so Paul is saying the cross is foolishness according to the world nobody's going to line up and be impressed by a beaten Jewish man hung on a cross that's not the person that's going to get the most likes and follows on Instagram right it's not going to be the one that wins the contest it looks like you lost from all criteria that you could apply. And so Paul is contrasting. He's, he's looking at these divisions where people are lining up behind their favorite people in the church. And he says, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what we do in the church. And so why is this important today? I mean, it's not like Battle Creek is shaped by Greek philosophy. Um, it's not like we're 
being engaged by these sophists on town squares or corners. It's not like this is dominating our lives. So why talk about this today? Well, a lot has changed in the last 2,000 years. Uh, but people's nature and the temptations that we're prone to fall into can remain pretty much the same. I said last week that God, being the hero of the story, can give us hope. And I said earlier uh, in this message that God, being the hero of the story, can create unity in the church. The truth I want to share with us today is that the local church and global Christianity, the church around the world, can experience unity as it lives out faithful commitment to Jesus and to Jesus alone. When we seek to worship Jesus alone, when we seek to honor and praise Jesus alone, when we celebrate Jesus alone, we can be united in our worship of the one who truly deserves honor and praise. But throughout history, Christians can mess this up sometimes, believe it or not. We're tempted to pledge our allegiance to celebrate, to follow, to serve, not the crucified Jesus, but that which is most impressive, most noteworthy, maybe the most exciting, maybe the most entertaining, or maybe even the most familiar, most comfortable. Right now, much of the church in America is experiencing decline in membership and attendance. It's a decades-long decline. Uh, A year ago or so, I shared a chart on the screens up here of our church's attendance over the last 20 years and its decline. I've looked at those, the same charts for churches all over. Um, most churches are experiencing that same ex- exact decline. Attendance, membership, financial giving have all declined over the last decade or so. Years ago, churches all over not just one denomination, not just one type of church, but churches all over decided that their mission was to grow. Um, They wanted to get bigger. They wanted to reach more people. They wanted to have more people come to their services and programs. And so the tools of that growth, you can look back historically and see that this this is how this was accomplished. The tools of that growth was charismatic leaders, impressive worship settings, and large productions and programs, and even larger and more impressive buildings. This was the strategy decided on a few decades ago that this is how we're gonna grow the church. We're gonna get a a really good preacher, speaker that people will like. We're gonna get a worship set that is just the best that you can possibly get. We're gonna have productions and programs and invite people to come to our impressive buildings. And these tools worked for a while. Attendance and giving grew. More people started showing up. You can see in the, the history of, of churches all across the place that this actually was a strategy that got people in the, in the doors of churches. People joined churches. They, they gave money to churches. They came on Sundays, mornings, Sunday nights, Wednesdays. They went to these programs. They supported them. These tools worked and the attendance grew. But pastors became celebrities Um, evangelism becomes marketing and worship can become performance. These churches grew in size and in status, but 
there was some pitfalls, some ditches that you could run into if you weren't careful. And many churches have experienced this. In the earliest days of the Church of the Nazarene, I think our leadership was very much aware of the type of temptation that was present in this type of model and the damage that it would do to the witness and to the mission of the church. I want to share a few slides, and if you're sitting in the back and can't see real well, uh, I guess that's what you get for sitting in the back. I, no. Um, <laughs> I think it's pretty clear. I just want to show four slides. These are pictures of churches of the Nazarene in the earliest of early days. Um, this is, this is a, uh, I want to say this was a 1930-something in Tennessee. I don't remember the exact location. I, I don't have them for everyone. But this is a, a humble church in the Nazarene. Part of the, the, the project that the Church of the Nazarene set about when it began was deliberately going into the neighborhoods and the communities that needed the most help. They said, we're going to reach out to these people that, that need something. And so they chose humble and just simple, um, over-impressive and, and fancy. And, and this is the Church of the Nazarene. If you can show the, the next slide... Um, this one's even smaller, but here, here's the church in Nazarene. It, it gets kind of pixelated because I kind of had to blow the, the picture up, but it's a, just a hand-painted sign that says Church of Nazarene on it. Um, it looks like a little storefront um, with a bench. Um, just humble and simple. The mission of holiness. There's, yeah, there's the next one. Here's another church of Nazarene. Uh, it looks like the shed where I keep my mower. Um, right? It's just this humble, simple gathering place. It was an anchor for these Nazarenes in this community. Um, they didn't expect people to show up because their building was impressive because, well, that wouldn't have happened. Um, and then I think there's one more. Do I have four? Here's another one, just, just for perspective. I mean, this is a, a larger building and it has vinyl siding on it, it looks like. With maybe by the pickup, maybe 1950s. But the Nazarene church from the beginning uh, set out about being humble um, because they didn't want to embrace the project of impressing people or entertaining people or making people comfortable in their sin. They were seeking to, to represent, even the name of the church, being the Church of Nazarene, they were seeking to represent the crucified Jesus into their communities. <clears throat> somewhere in our culture, though, somewhere along the way, and I'm not criticizing the Nazarene church, this was pretty much all churches, um, being impressive or even just being respectable became the mission of the church. The temptation became to find value not in necessarily just being faithfully obedient to the crucified Jesus, but there was value in who you were connected with. Who was the leaders in your church? Um, being connected and associated with the best or the most impressive. And then because it wasn't Jesus that was uniting the church, because the focal point wasn't uh, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus because the focal point wasn't the cross because the church wasn't only focused on Jesus. There began to be divisions along the lines of what was the most important, what was the most impressive, what would be the best thing to do. And this is what's happening in the church in Corinth. You have uh, these members that say, I follow the apostle Paul. Do you, do you remember this guy? He came and he lived with us for 18 months he taught me about, about Jesus. He taught me about this Christian life and I became a Christian because of the Apostle Paul. And he, do you remember he shared that message and it was amazing. Can you, do you remember him? I follow him. 
<laughs> That's my guy. And then somebody else says, well, I, I follow Apollos. Man, he, he was a great teacher, right? We just all love him. So I'm, I'm in the Apollos camp. He's really an impressive speaker. He does so many things right. It's just amazing. I'm, I'm on team Apollos. Did you know that he was the one that baptized me? Like, how lucky am I that he is the one that baptized me? I'm going to follow him. I'm committed to him. It's amazing, isn't it? And then the others in the group said, I follow Cephas, Peter. Like, I've never met him, but you know the stories about him, right? He walked on water with Jesus. He announced for the first time in, in our scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Like, this Peter guy, he messed up a little bit, but he's pretty amazing. And then we have him preaching these amazing sermons in Jerusalem. Like, that's our guy. And then you have a group in the scriptures that we read today that say, I follow Christ. And I can just imagine a couple guys over in the corner going, I thought that's what we were here for. <laughs> I thought that's what we were supposed to be about. I thought we were following Jesus. Christians who participate in a Christianity which celebrates the most impressive or the most entertaining will find themselves living as part of a divided community or a divided church. Instead of creating unity, it creates competition. Instead of pointing everyone to Jesus, groups within the community start pointing others to their preferences, their desires, or that which makes them comfortable. Rather than working to lift up and celebrate Jesus, we end up promoting and celebrating our favorites or even ourselves. Instead of Christians using our positions and our status in the congregation to build up the ministry of the church, we end up using the church to build up our positions and our status. Instead of using our gifts and abilities to point people to faith in Jesus, we end up using other people's faith in Jesus to draw attention to our gifts and abilities. Do you see the distortion that happens there? And this isn't me trying to criticize anyone because first and foremost, this is a confession. When I first became a pastor and started preaching, I was terribly insecure about my preaching and my pastoring. I didn't want people to think that their pastor didn't know what he was doing or wasn't a good pastor. And so because of my insecurity and my uncertainty, I wanted to impress those that I was preaching to. I wanted them to like me. I wanted them to think that I knew what I was doing. And, and, and this shaped the stories that I told or the stories I didn't tell so in my early days of preaching, I may have told the story about, hey, this time I was in Israel and was walking where Jesus walked, whatever. Or this time when I was riding my, my motorcycle at 150 miles an hour on the racetrack, kind of looking for the cool angle. Um, or maybe this time when I was managing $40 million in inventory in the warehouse, trying to show I'm competent and a good leader in the business world that I, that I worked in. Right? My fear was that I wasn't good enough, and that, that led me to the point where I wanted to lift myself up and celebrate me. Not because I wanted to be the hero of the story, but because I was afraid that people didn't think I was good enough. The reality is that the church is known, and this is a good reputation to have, the church is known as a place that you can go to and find help and comfort and encouragement, even if the rest of the world, the rest of your life is just in shambles, that you should be able to walk through the doors of a church and be told that you're a good person or that you did a good job. 
right? There's people that walk through the door and the only time they ever feel comfortable or safe is in a church. And that's an amazing testimony and an amazing witness about what Jesus is trying to do in a community like ours. The church should be a place that encourages and supports others as they serve and worship Jesus. But it's real easy and tempting at times to go from being encouraged as I lift up Jesus to wanting to be lifted up myself. If that happens, if that move happens, if I, if I go to the church because I want to be lifted up instead of going to church to lift up Jesus, then other Christians or other churches, other ministries, whatever category you're looking at, other things become competition. And when that happens, church becomes more about satisfying consumers' needs and wants and less about worshiping Jesus. In this room, there are people with all different types of backgrounds, financial backgrounds, uh, educational backgrounds, family backgrounds, all different types of things, different work, different careers, different schools, different experiences. The thing that unites us, the only thing that unites us is fidelity, faith in Jesus. And so God, being the hero of the story, can give us hope, like we talked about last week, because God is faithful. But God, being the hero of the story, can create unity in the church because we can all commit to worship and celebrate Jesus and Jesus alone. It's his church, it's his ministry, it's his spirit, his resources, his mission, his plan. And so here's the truth that I want us to grab a hold of today. If God is the hero of the story, then Jesus is the only one who should receive honor and glory, right? If Jesus is, if God is the hero of the story, if Jesus is the king, the one that we're here to celebrate, then he is the only one who should receive the glory and the honor. As a pastor who pays careful attention not only to like our church and what's going on here, but churches all over the place and church culture in general, um, it's become kind of obvious that the churches that are stuck the churches that are in decline, the churches that are experiencing conflict or churches that have an unhealthy culture, they're the ones that have agendas other than worshiping Jesus and him alone. There's some other mission at work, there's some other plan, there's some other desire, whether it be to, to get more, uh, a bigger building, to get more people in the seats, to, to be impressive, to go to the cool hip church, whatever it might be, but churches that are stuck have adopted some mission beyond worship and praise Jesus alone. It's these healthy and fruitful churches that put Jesus above everything else. Again, in this room, there are people that probably voted differently in elections. There's people that probably have different perspectives on on the way the culture should go, would make different decisions uh, about anything and everything. The thing that unites us is our faith in Jesus, our commitment, our fidelity, our, our, our desire to lift and honor him, to worship him and him alone. And so I'll say it again, the local church and the global Christianity, the church around the world can experience unity as we live out lives of faithful commitment to Jesus and Jesus alone. There's a lot of denominational infighting sometimes. We might look around and say, oh, we, at least we're better than the Baptists. We're better than those people, the Lutherans and the Presbyterians. Well, when we understand that they're worshiping and lifting up Jesus, we can experience unity with people that are completely different 
backgrounds and do things differently. I, my, one of the most encouraging things I, I hear every so often is, is Peggy works with uh, the food pantry at other churches in our community whose, whose mission is they want to feed people in our community because Jesus wants them to. And it doesn't matter that they do church differently than we do. We're, there's unity there because the mission is faithful obedience to Jesus and nothing else. And so that's a reminder that I, I love to hear the stories as Peggy comes back from the, those churches and, and hears what they're doing and how we can work together. The local church and churches around the world can experience unity as we live out lives of faithful commitment to Jesus and Jesus alone. And so today, as we've done the last few weeks, I want to invite us to pray a prayer of confession. Again, every, every time there's a, a pronoun in here, it's we. This is us collectively. I'm not picking on any one particular person. You might be sitting there going, what did I do? Why do I have to confess? It's a collective communal prayer. Um, it's a prayer of confession. I, I think I put the slides in. Yep. I'm going to invite you to pray this out loud with me as we read through it. And then at the end, I will um, announce God's mercy to us. Um, let's pray this prayer together. You ready? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is merciful to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. And so it's in the name of our Lord Jesus that your sins are forgiven. I'm going to pray while the worship team comes to lead us in a time of response. God, our light and our salvation, Forgive us those moments when we have walked in darkness, stumbling in the wilderness of divisions and conflict. You have called us to follow you and to fish for people. But too often we think our way is the only way to do your will. So we pray that you forgive us, Lord, for the brokenness we bring upon ourselves. God, the stronghold of our life, we pray that you hear our cry as we come to you seeking unity. Send your spirit to gather, to gather us as you desire us. Remind us that unity does not mean uniformity. We're not all alike and nor is that the plan for us to become alike. Teach us that the same mind you have called us to live in is not ours, but the mind of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.